Hello, Dr. Janet McCordy. How are you? McMorty, close. McMorty, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, don't worry about it. It's a tough one. What a great start. How are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I'm great. How are you? Yeah, also good. Thank you for coming on today. I'm excited for our conversation. Thanks for having me. I'm excited too. Yeah, so today we are here to talk about the science of pain. Um, it is something that you as a physician have been interested in and have worked with multiple client I mean patients or, or clients I suppose it depends how you phrase it um, over the years and um, it's a particular interest of yours as well is, is that correct? Yeah absolutely I mean my clinical practice is in sports medicine but I usually kind of say you know I don't just see athletes I see the weekend warriors I see people with you know um, injuries from work etc cetera, etc cetera. and then of course over the pandemic when we didn't have any sports um, and I was seeing a huge increase in people's pain levels and kind of wondering why that was kind of got me interested in the last you know 18 months diving into more of the the pain science and why why we experience pain the way that we do mm-hmm so when you say that you've seen that during the pandemic that uh, pain has has risen wh what kind of pain are you talking about yeah, so it's more the the chronic pain as opposed to kind of acute pain as like, you know, as in, ow, I stepped on a Lego, as opposed to pain that people have had kind of over three months that's pretty kind of predictable. They get the same sensation over and over again that they've been dealing with it. I definitely have seen an increase in, in people's pain, chronic pain levels over the pandemic, um, but also what seems to trigger kind of flares in people's chronic pain as well, too, that seems to be changing, um, uh, changing as well, just because I think people are dealing with so much new stuff uh, throughout the pandemic. And again, I was kind of curious. I didn't really understand originally why. And then so again, that was hence my deep dive over the last 18 yeah. months into, hmm, what have we learned about pain since I was in medical school? And it is quite a lot, which is exciting. Yeah. I mean, so what's been like the most interesting or revealing part um, of it for you? Oh, gosh, so much. I, I think <laughs> Big question. You know, we kind of, yeah, we have, I think a lot of times people think of pain as this very simplistic, you know, way of, okay, flesh is wounded. Oh, it's a flesh wound. Um, and then the nerves send a message to your brain about the flesh wound. And then you know, and the intensity of that message is directly related to how severe your flesh is wounded. And then the brain goes, oh, there's some bad damage there. We believe there's some bad damage and then we feel pain. But that is mm -hmm. so not the case at all. It seems to be more, and again, not an exact science, um, but there seems to be more of a, pers I guess, more, pain is more of a quote unquote opinion and there's a perception that, you know, we have to go through. There's a filter of perception that our brain has to go through and all these different factors that tune our pain, you know, amplify it or dampen it or change its quality. Um, again, that the brain does to allow us to perceive pain. And I say pain is an opinion. That is not my quote. That's a very famous quote from a, um, an Indian American neuroscientist um, who discovered this and did a lot of interesting studies on phantom limb pain. Mm -hmm. You know, that's kind of this weird and wonderful thing in medicine. You know, like somebody doesn't have a hand, but they still experience pain in the hand that's no longer there. And so right. this, uh, his name is Dr. Ramachandran. Um, 
did a lot of interesting studies and therapies with mirrors and, and whatnot, you know, where they would set up a different mirror system. And so he could, the patient could see his unamputated hand, but it looked like the original hand that had already been amputated. And so he right. could move the hand and he could see with, and so his brain is seeing that hand and going, oh yeah, it's there. It's working. It's good. And that helped with the phantom limb pain. It's like this, again, this weird, one of the weirdest things in medicine. I mean, nobody has quite figured out what it is, but it was enough for us to say, huh, okay, I think there's more to this. Something's going on. <laughs> yeah. Something's going on, exactly, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense, right? Because, like, intuitively it seems that you would think, like, oh, well, if my arm or my leg has to be amputated, then I'm not going to be receiving any signals from that, and so how could I possibly feel pain in something that doesn't exist, right? Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And yet, you know, at the same time, it also makes sense to me that, well, the structures that you have in your brain are already set up to almost receive those sort of signals or those messages. And so they can act, be activated by like different mechanisms within the brain that would lead to the experience of you feeling a pain in a place that doesn't exist anymore right yeah um exactly. which is very strange but it, it's it's so interesting right and I, I so this doctor that you that you just mentioned so when he was doing these mirror experiments um was that to kind of like trick your brain into processing information about something that isn't there um in in order to kind of like resolve an issue that was there or, or what was the primary reason for his research yeah so it was mainly again like him being you know this doctor being a neuroscientist wanting to obviously help his patient um yeah it was like i think the goal was obviously to make this person feel better this poor man but again yeah. it was also to look at you know why is this happening and it seemed to be like the mere appearance of you know he this man felt better because of the illusion that he was better because he thought he was better right right yeah. so is there is there power in that and, and why is that the case and like this is one of the most like curious anecdotes in all of pain science like in all of medicine mm -hmm. and we still don't really understand because the brain is so complex i mean it gives us our reality of course it's complex how can pain be simple when it comes from our brain but yeah it seems to be more of pain seems to be more like an opinion on our state of health rather than a response, like a reflexive response to injury. And there's so many neat studies that have been done that show very similar things. Um, but I have like a funny anecdotal example of a patient of, it wasn't of mine, um, but gave me permission to tell a story. Um, he <laughs> thought he had experienced like massive, massive lower bowel hemorrhage, like looked in the toilet and there was blood okay. everywhere like red everywhere and he was like oh my gosh like fainted and his wife came to check on him and fainted. he woke up and he's like writhing in pain he saw blood he was like she's like where are you sore oh my gosh calls 911 and um you know he's right he's like everywhere it's so sore i'm gonna die oh my god and the ambulance comes to like check on him and they make sure he's okay and he's writhing and he's in so much pain and they look and a really common cause of red in stool is beets eating large amounts uh -huh. of beets and that's what he right. was in the toilet and so it looked okay. like blood just the appearance of blood and the fear of blood was enough to have this man experience excruciating pain 
And then as soon as the paramedics said, you know, this is what it is. We think you're okay. He was like, oh, okay. And his pain was gone. So again, this like behavior, you know, this a response to a stimulus, a perceived threat was that was enough to cause immense real pain for this person. So what if like your brain just keeps believing there's a threat and there isn't like a nice paramedic who can reassure you that it's beet juice, (laughs) not blood, right? Like that's kind of the nature of what can, what chronic pain can become. So it can be, I guess in psychology terms, a learned response because you learn a behavior. So yeah, fascinating. Right. And, and, and also like once you start expecting it to be there, then there's a much higher possibility of it actually being there, you know, some sort of mm-hmm. placebo-like effect of, you know, if you if you wake up for the last year or few months with pain in your arm, you're tomorrow you're probably going to wake up and think, here comes the pain, instead of being like, is there pain today? And sort of just yeah. see whether it's the case, you're more likely to be conditioned in that way to just be like, okay, well, there's going to be pain and so I'm just going to feel it. And then you almost inevitably do, right? Like a, like a self-fulfilling yeah. prophecy. Absolutely. Um, and I think like you were, like before we got on to chatting, we were talking about, yeah. you know, the war in PTSD. And if you feel like you, if you feel like there is, so two examples, if you feel like there should be more pain or something is going to be painful or someone's told you something will be painful, it will be. And they've done some mm-hmm. neat studies on people who, have gotten knee replacements and they were told it's going to be horrific before they went in for the knee replacement or it's going to go great. And predictably, the people who were told it's going to be horrific and really painful experienced immense amounts of pain, had the exact same surgery. The people who were told, no, it's going to be great, it's going to be fine, did much better post-operative pain-wise. But same with like the looking at veterans or people who who like the history of the early pain research was done on veterans from world war ii and they had less pain when they were when they felt they were safe and so we as humans Hmm. feel that when we feel that when we're confident we're safe we've experienced less pain so these world war ii veterans experienced very little pain like surprisingly little pain for the severity of their injuries because they were just assumedly so glad to be off of the battlefield and we're now safe right um so yeah so that ever since then people have been trying to figure that out it's a good question um i i'm not sure i mean there have been some interesting studies looking at not just veterans but like other emotions that make us feel safe like feelings Mm -hmm. of like when you're in love there's very good evidence showing that you have you experience less pain when you're in love or you're in a um or say children who are in a safe stable home environment experience less Mm -hmm. chronic pain when they don't have you know threats of trauma and abuse and stuff like that i would say it probably does last because we see the flip opposite so people who don't feel safe especially children who've been exposed to high levels of um, adverse childhood uh, experiences like um, abuse, incarcerated parents, et cetera, et cetera, we see throughout the rest of their life they're impacted by that. So I wouldn't be surprised if mm-hmm. the opposite was true. Right. Or at least, you know, it would last as long as that feeling of safety persists, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, like there might be a period of time where the relief from being off the battlefield gives and being at home gives that sense of safety, 
but sort of like as life goes on uh things might change for a given individual and then old things might start coming up again right mm-hmm. um but i'm i'm interested in, in this idea of you know pain being an opinion and mm-hmm. i think what i take from from you saying that because i've never heard it phrased like that before and i are, are you saying it's like like a perception in a sense of like it, it's quite individualized to you and how you're interpreting and perceiving these sensations that are happening in the body right because pain itself is a very broad umbrella and there's so many different kinds of pain um you know even just from like a physical pain perspective it can be like sharp pain burning pain um like long pain i mean um i don't know cramping all kinds of things can happen right and then it's a matter of like well you you experience this pain or this sensation let's say and then a part of your brain goes well what does this mean right and how can i understand and interpret what's happening right now um and is is that what you mean by opinion like yeah, that's where say, it comes from yeah i would say so and again um not a perfect science we're still learning more sure. about it um and uh but yeah i I would say, yeah, it, it is definitely, you know, a perception. I think once that message of, and I should say, as an aside, I'm talking about chronic pain, so not like stepping on mm-hmm. a Lego type pain, and also pain that's not associated with um, distinct pathology and like genetic vulnerabilities, because there's lots of things that can cause, you know, a right. torn rotator cuff can cause pain different than, say, the pain that um, people who suffer from fibromyalgia have, you know, have. Mm-hmm. Very, very different. So I'm talking more about like that chronic chronic greater than three months we've healed the tissue per se you know from the damage there's nothing structural there um and but we're still experiencing pain symptoms um so again not not no pathologies or genetic vulnerabilities but yeah i think you know the brain uh, being so complicated because it has to like once it gets that danger message the brain has to say okay how dangerous is this how do we how do we perceive this danger how dangerous is this really, mm-hmm. right? You know, this in order to do that, it needs to draw on a bunch of different things, you know, like all credible information coming in, previous exposures, yeah. cultural influences, knowledge, other sensory clues, tons of other things. Like it's endless, the list. And there's lots of things that make people more vulnerable to experiencing pain. I should say more there's modifiable risk factors for any type of chronic pain. And so we see people who experience these, these risk factors tend to perceive pain for longer. It's, uh, you know, they get, it's louder in amplitude. It's stronger. They hear Mm -hmm. the brain senses that the pain is more severe than what, you know, an MRI or any tissue damage would say. Right. Yeah. And, I mean, it's very curious how how that sort of pans out because just, you know, thinking about it again from a non-expert or experiential perspective, you'd think that like when you're in a dangerous situation, that's when you would want to feel the least amount of pain, right? Because Mm -hmm. that's going to distract you and keep you from being able to survive, right? You'd Mm -hmm. think that like the adrenaline um, would sort of, put you in a position where you can fight or flee or whatever you you need to do what you need to do and not feel pain at that point because um it's compromising your safety right whereas you would and then 
when you're in a safe position, it's more likely to be like, okay, well now I'm safe and I can see what's going on internally, right? Not see, see, but like, you know, perceive what's happening inside. But that's as what you're saying is that's not what happens, right? What happens yeah. is when there's danger, people will feel the pain. And when people are feeling safe, that's when it um, seems to go away or it, it's at least lessened, right? So that's it. That's very interesting. Um, yeah. It's a strange connection. It is. And I think it's interesting what you mentioned there about the what was the fight or flight response, right? Because we as humans need that. It's mm -hmm. life saving, right? We need to have that. Um, you know, for example, you're walking in a forest and you see a bear, right? You immediately get the release of all the stress hormones um, saying, you know, fight, flee, freeze, right? And we need right. to have the ability to do that. Um, and all animals do that. But the interesting thing about humans is that, and again, this is a, from a great book called Why uh, Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. Um, it's looking at, you know, like animals like zebras, say, for example, need to run away from a threat, but their threat is episodic. It doesn't happen very often. Mm -hmm. When it happens, you need to get away really, really fast. As humans, we have the exact same response, but our stressors are chronic, right? So it is happening over right. and over and over again. So it's not like, oh, a bear is chasing us every so often. That bear is chasing people with 21st century stressors over and over and over again. So that part of the the part of your brain, that hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis that's releasing adrenaline is nonstop being activated. And so that changes the system from being life-saving to maladaptive and health damaging when you have constant high levels of stress hormones. And there's been phenomenal research um, from, the, from the states taking a look at people who are more sensitive to that repeated stress activation. Children, you know, our vulnerable populations, lower socioeconomic status, people with mental health um, conditions like depression and anxiety. And they affect your immune system and they affect our risk of other diseases, not just pain, but we know yeah. that that system releases immense amounts of inflammation as life-saving, right? Because the body is right. prepping for tissue damage from this bear that's not there, but we get inflammation still coursing through our body and that produces pain. Right. And in the modern world, it's like these threats are you know, I, I don't know if mental is the correct or psychological is necessarily the correct way of thinking about it, but it's more psychological than physical at the time because it's like, well, <clears throat> you know, for example, like now I'm in a room, I'm, you know, by myself, there's no physical threat to me, but I, internally I could be tremendously stressed about work and friends and, you know, family and, and all those kinds of things. And like thinking about that, um, on a continuous basis and, you know, then really getting stuck there. And you can do that all day, right? And mm -hmm. I, to a large degree, you know, I, I've noticed that, like, it feels real, right? It feels like it the real. threat is real and immediate, mm -hmm. right? Well, mm -hmm. it, it is real and, and it isn't real, I guess, right? Because it's like it's real in the sense of it's real to you in that moment. Correct. But it's yeah. not real in the sense of, like, you're not really in danger, right? Mm -hmm. It just feels like you're in danger or you're imagining that there is a danger present that isn't necessarily. 
I mean, it's a really strange line, right? Between what's real and what's not real. Not that it's mm-hmm. like, you know, it's kind of hard to talk about because like psychological phenomenon are real for the person who's experiencing it, but they don't have to be true, I suppose, is the way maybe to think about it where it's like, yeah, I mean, those things might be true. There might be all these stresses with your friends or your family or whatever or your work, but is it real in the sense of like it's a real threat to you right now and it's like Mm -hmm. not really you're just trying to problem solve it in your head and during that process um your body kind of perceives that as it well it's happening now right and that's the anxiety and, and whatever that comes with it and then yeah i mean you do that long enough and you you just break yourself um and it's terrible absolutely and And i think yeah sorry yeah no go for it i was just gonna say the optimistic side of that is Mm. you know yes the tissue damaging threat is not there um of a there's no bear literally chasing you so is there a way to unlearn this learned response to stress right i mean your body is going to biologically produce this this is how this is hormones right you can't stop that from happening but can you unlearn some of the behaviors that kind of push people into that state of heightened you know um, anxiety and fear and is there a threat and I mean we know there's things that predispose people of predispose people to having chronic pain um, and that heightened you know level of adrenaline and inflammation and stuff like that so can we work on these modifiable risk factors and what can we do to help people you know empower themselves um i mean there obviously there's lots of unmodifiable risk factors i mean stress is one of them it was of course it's not modifiable if it was modifiable it wouldn't be stress um yeah but there's lots of things that we can do and try to do to help people and help communities um because it definitely again over this pandemic has been such a huge um you know huge thing that I've seen and just hearing from patients um, and realizing that there's it's so much more than just you know ow I stubbed my toe <laughs> yeah no for sure and it, it's also like you know I like I, I've seen it in people who have like panic disorder or, or who suffer from like panic attacks right I think that's a, a nice clear example of how your mind essentially creates this terror of reality that it's it's very real when it's happening right and then there are these processes that you can learn or be taught to do and there's lots of different kinds in in terms of like how to approach it and i guess it depends on the person what they like and what works best for them whether it's you know cbt or meditation or exposure therapy or all kinds of things um or usually a combination of many things and and uh, medications and things like that as well where you sort of can teach yourself that you can respond differently to the thoughts that you're having or to the perceptions or the experiences and it's not easy and it, it takes a lot out of you right because it doesn't just go away and unfortunately for those people um that it, it, it is a, it's a very rough thing to go through but you people can do it right and so there is this ability to like modify your risk factors in terms of you can't you know change your your sort of structural biology the way it's sort of primed and set up originally 
but there's ways of like navigating what you do with it right and similarly you could like you can't really avoid stress in life but you can figure out like a balance of like how much stress is a, a reasonable amount to put yourself through and what's the cost to that you know do you give yourself like adequate rest and recovery time um and you know to, to avoid like burnout and all kinds of things do you need to change jobs or do you need to go for therapy or do you need to exercise more or like all these things that you know people can and do do to make changes right and um mm. people see results right not quickly yeah. but often right absolutely um so when someone comes to you right and they're like i have this chronic pain that i've had all the tests for and there's no um pathology that suggests that there's anything wrong what's your kind of what's your approach like as as a you know primary care physician like what do you say like how do we approach it from there yeah so i mean we talk a lot a, a lot about you know kind of proactive and reactive strategies for pain hmm. i mean the patient comes in and has pain we do want to do things like pretty quickly to try and decrease pain whether that be like say for example in my world i see a lot of again i do a lot of things like cortisone injections and stuff like that um to bring pain down fairly quickly i mean that's not a cure mm -hmm. at all but that can help break the pain cycle enough to start on some of the ways to modify the chronic pain cycle right. um so that's kind of the reactionary like we're reacting to pain let's do something and so a lot of times people kind of jump on like i want to take medication i want what can i do now i need something to be done quickly and like like yeah. you were saying it's not a quick thing to reverse but um if we can do something fairly quick to bring some pain down pain relief a little bit that can usually make some of the other things a lot easier to do. Say, for example, the most important thing is getting good quality sleep. Like insomnia mm -hmm. and pain are so intimately connected. One causes really? the other and vice versa. So if we can get pain down so people can have good restorative sleep and good quality sleep, that's one of the first things I tend to focus on because it can be, it's, it's something simple. It's something that a lot of people don't recognize as a big contributor to pain and it is the biggest contributor to pain to chronic pain hmm. and it's something that most people despite um you know because honestly a lot of things we do to help with pain um are expensive um yeah. people don't have coverage for it um so and, and if we notice that a lot of people who are in pain tend to be you know people of more lower socioeconomic status marginalized populations so things like improving sleep quality is something that we can try and do fairly simply and inexpensively you know limiting your yeah. screen time um you know making sure you have you know proper dark curtains um you know or eye mask or whatever um and making sure you have you know good like i'm in a, in bed at 10 i'm up at six proper no naps you know very structured time limiting nic uh, nicotine and alcohol and caffeine stuff like that and then you know as i kind of build the patient relationship if they want to delve into more of the other things like mental health issues stressors ptsd stuff like that then we 
keep that open i mean unfortunately Mm -hmm. it's tough you get some a lot of pushback from people but i just keep telling people like what can what can go right like you might not solve the problem but you really can't waste your time trying to be a health or fitter fitter person (laughs) um i mean i think a lot of it does come down to kind of the society that we live in that kind of Mm. promotes stress and work hard push hard you know like yeah don't talk about it anything like that but um but definitely kind of starting that conversation. Yeah. And it's interesting how many people, if they're open to hearing what you have to say, and a lot of times it is my, um, my veterans, when they recognize it and I say, you know, like, tell me about the last time your back pain was flared up. And they're mm-hmm. like, oh, you know, I, for example, someone was like, yeah, my mom was really sick in the hospital. Like, what else was going on? And then you recognize that there's this trigger here. Right. So, okay, yeah, that's a really big life stressor going on. Of course, your inflammatory system is going to be so heightened. Or if somebody suffers from depression, um, you know, recognizing that the biological vulnerability, telling them like the biological vulnerability that you have because you suffer from depression means that you don't recover from these stressors well. So once that's recognized, then we can build from that and see what we can see what we can do like how can we modify um modify these things there's a really great quote and it's about public health and Mm. it's kind of uh you know if there are 100 people and they all drink from a well and 98 98 of them get sick you know you can either have give out gobs and gobs of medication to try and cure them from their illness from drinking out of this well or you can turn around, walk over, and go, "What is in this damn well?" <laughs> right. Right. And so fix it from fix it from there. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So best thing to do is try and improve like general health as opposed to fixing these specific issues of the tissues. <laughs> <laughs> I like that issues of the tissues. Issues um, of the tissues. Not my quote. That's a great yeah, yeah. quote from a, a wonderful author named Todd Hargrove. <laughs> nice. It's a good one. Um, it is good. <laughs> but that makes sense, right? You, it, it's symptom versus causal treatment. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it's also, I imagine, you know, people come in and, and they're often desperate, right? Because chronic pain can do that to you. Um, mm-hmm. And so that they, they'll, they'll want to come in and particularly if they've been avoiding seeking help for it for a long time for all sorts of reasons. Um, they finally come in and they're like, I just want something to make this go away. And, you know, as you say, it's not that simple. I mean, mm-hmm. you could give them like prescription meds, but that's a symptom treatment. And, you know, that might end up doing more damage than it does good if it's not, if it's the only thing that's being done, right? Um Hence the sort of opioid crisis of the last few decades. Yeah. Um, and it's, I think it's hard because, um, I mean, I don't, I, my mentor in family practice uh, who's retired now, but she, I remember her telling me she remembers the day that a pharmaceutical rep came into her office in the 80s and said, we have the best drug. Mm-hmm. Like, it's going to help all your patients with pain. And like all you know, most doctors, like if we can help patients with pain, because pain is so difficult to treat. If we hear this, we're like, that's wonderful. You know, great medication for pain. It's not addictive. It's wonderful. It's really going to help your patients. Yay. It's called oxycodone. Yeah. Right. And so, oh my God. Now we look back and we're like, how could you be so stupid? But like, right. You didn't know. That was the science at the time. It's it's, it's exactly. And this is why science evolves and changes. It's just, and that's why we're learning all about 
new stuff about pain in the last couple years, right? Like a, yeah. a big study just came out in 2019 about, in, again, insomnia and sleep that finally showed parts of the brain that don't work well when we aren't sleeping properly, you know? And so sleep deprivation, this is just in 2019, they realized that sleep deprivation makes, you know, suppresses yeah. the activity that fine-tuned pain experiences. So we get like, if you don't sleep, you get this loud pain alarm and you have less ability to turn it off. And yeah. it's, again, that just came out in 2019. So we're learning so much about it. Yeah, and it's also, you know, a weird part of science is this, the or well, the progression of science at least, is that like, you know, real scientists, they like, they try to prove old theories wrong to make them better, right? Uh, and that it's okay to, I mean, there is the unfortunate consequence of like, because we don't know everything as a, you know, the human race and or science, let's say, we don't know everything. Um, and so they're just, everyone's sort of like doing their best they can, aside from any sort of like nefarious activities that happen for money, which is definitely a huge problem, but let's give people the benefit of the doubt to say that, you know, people are trying to help people, right? And advance science and advance um, medicine and things like that. Um, and sometimes, you know, mistakes or overlooking things or just not knowing has a huge cost. Um, and that's very unfortunate, uh, but it does happen. And then, you know, the right approach would not to just be abandon everything and be like, well, all science and all medicine sucks. Um, you know, forget about all that shit. It, it, it's like, no, well, okay, well, now we have this problem. How do we deal with it? Right. Mm -hmm. So like now we have all these people who are addicted to opiates, um, possibly for years. How do we deal with it? Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that would be the ideal way of, of approaching it. I don't know if people get that kind of treatment all the time, but that's sort of physician dependent. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and it is. But I mean, you know, just back to that, the, the idea of sleep, it's like we do underestimate sleep so much. And I'm not even sure mm -hmm. why. It, it's such a. I mean, you just need to look around to know that everything that lives pretty much sleeps, right? Mm -hmm. And then for us humans to come along and to just be like, nah, I don't need sleep. It's fine. <laughs> you know, I yeah. can do, I can live on four hours or whatever. It's like, yeah. I mean, you, you, what are you doing? You know, how could you think that that's possibly just fine to be endlessly tired and um, fatigued and, and just, I mean, it's it's the worst. I hate feeling like I'm the kind of person who, if I don't get like eight, seven, eight hours, like the day sucks for me. And if yeah. it happens more than like two or three days in a row, then I'm just, I'm fucked, right? Until mm -hmm. I get that sleep. And other people aren't like that. They can, I don't know if it's something with willpower or whatever that they can push through that for like years. Um, I mean, it comes at a cost, that's for sure. But mm -hmm. um, it, it is amazing how much we underestimate sleep and and it's not even clear why we do that. I guess it's because, you know, from our sort of like mental perspective, it's like, well, it doesn't seem to do anything. We don't immediately observe the effects of it except feeling better and knowing mm -hmm. that we need it when we get yes. tired, right? We have yeah. this huge draw to go to sleep, which is also an interesting thing. Um, like people who, you know, get lost in the cold and eventually they get so tired that they fall asleep and they know that they're not going to wake up, but that that pull to sleep is so strong that mm -hmm. people do it, right? Yeah. Which is very yeah. curious. 
because you'd think that your body would just be like no we need to use every energy resource available until it's absolutely nothing left but that's not quite Mm -hmm. how it goes right yeah well in that case like when you're getting like hypothermia you are shutting down to preserve right Right. so shutting everything down to preserve but but yeah like insomnia like it's not generally fatal because we've got all kinds of these self-preservation mechanisms that will kick in yeah but uh, what is the thing i remember learning like a non a poison at a non-fatal dosage is still poisonous yeah (laughs) again that's not my quote i wish i was that um (laughs) that smart but like there's like sleep deprivation is dangerous stuff like it causes migraines and makes you vulnerable to infections it wrecks your mood like wrecks it um and makes you sick in the long term as well too like you were saying like you don't recognize it right away but things like insulin resistance type 2 diabetes cardiovascular disease like there is association all of these things and i think i remember when i was in my medical training and when you're in your residency you have to do call and that's in the hospital and you're up for 26 plus two hours it's union mandated so it's like 28 hours you're awake and when you're driving home like they've done studies looking at medical residents trying to drive home you're basically driving under the influence the same as a drunk driver would be yeah it's so crazy that they make students do this yeah we're we're trying to do surgery you know i mean it's interesting because there we actually don't like screw up as much as people thought we would because you go into this fight or flight you know Mm -hmm. overdrive response but over time that just becomes like again you get sick you're cranky it's chronic pain Uh, yeah is there any benefit to it to insomnia no to to these like 24 or 30 hour shifts yeah it's interesting they uh, were kind of the thought is patient handover so when the most dangerous time in the hospital is when one doctor is changing to another doctor because the Mm. doctors have to communicate with each other about patients that's called patient handover when you're like i'm going to tell you about mrs blah 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 in bed number two that's the most dangerous time because it's it's human right human transfer of information is not we're not great at it um and so they try to have the longest amount of time with one doctor possible and then hand over um, that I think is the theory behind mm. why there's also the like social idea of well this is how it was back in my day you have to all suffer and this oh, is what yeah, residency is like it's always fun right like I had to go through this back in my day yeah. um, but there's definitely been a change at least in the medical culture over especially this pandemic when medical doctors are now the highest rate of suicide um, out of any career like we surpassed really? the veterinarians and we were like go us um but it's not just insomnia yeah. and stuff like that it re- relates to burnout and moral moral fatigue and stuff like that compassion fatigue and whatnot yeah. but uh yeah it's a strange thing call i've yeah, always found it very strange having friends who have done it and i'm like why are they doing this to you like i i, I can't <laughs> see a benefit in other than you know the people who are doing it to you get the benefit of it you know but it, it's like yeah there's for sure that you know i mean they do it in lots of professions like when people do articling for like law or accounting or all kinds of stuff and people 
you know, do like 18 hour days, seven days a week. And it's like, why? This is so insane, right? And, you know, from, I don't understand it because I'm the kind of person who goes like, if I, if I, you know, if I, let's say if I went through medical school and I had to do that, and then I reached the point of like a senior person who sort of now has junior people, I wouldn't be like, oh, I went through it, so you have to go through it. I'd be like, no, I did it and it sucked. How can I make it better for you that you don't have to mm-hmm. suffer like I did, right? But that's not how people approach it. They're like, no, it's a some sort of test of, uh, you know, it's like an initiation routine or mm-hmm. something like that, right? Very strange. Yeah, um, I think there is, unfortunately, a part of it is staffing the hospital. You yeah, know, hospitals true. are overflowing with people and there just mm-hmm. isn't enough, there aren't enough people to work. And so yeah. it's trying to get enough people working and then people need to have time off after they've worked and stuff like that. So that's a real struggle. I mean, we have a shortage of all types of medical um, all types of healthcare workers. Um, yeah. And I mean, we see very similar things in shift workers as well, too. Like mm. the people who work, um, you know, like our nursing staff who work 12 hour shifts and they do like four nights and then they take a break and then they do four days and it kind of flip flops back around and so you don't get that good regular sleep cycle. Yeah. Um, we see that and, uh, in, in, you know, anybody who, anybody who works overnight really can, th- it throws it all off. Yeah. It's, it, mm-hmm. It it's so crazy, and I feel for anyone who has to do it, you know. And some people mm-hmm. like it. I, I don't know that it's most. Um, I think you could probably get into a, a routine and sort of learn how to enjoy it more than just suffer through it. But mm-hmm. um, and there's also something quite special about being awake at night when no one else is, mm-hmm. right? But it yeah. does it does come at a cost uh, if you Absolutely. do it too much, right? But so so the other thing that I wanted to chat to you about today that we had sort of. Uh, mentioned was the connection between trauma and pain right Mm -hmm. Uh, so what I mean I know it's a complicated question but like what's the sort of general idea of how those two are connected together yeah I think it's related to what we talked about already that feeling of like threat hypervigilance right that's kind of a main driver for pain no go for it um and that chronic trauma over time becomes, again, like a conditioned behavior as you're kind of constantly mm. on high alert. And similar to what we were talking about, you know, that threat of the bear in the forest. But what we now see are the threats of the bear now is prior trauma, you know, physical, emotional, sexual abuse, neglect, parental illness, substance dependence, domestic violence stuff like that that you know requires the person involved to be at a level of hyper vigilance and Mm -hmm. we know that that is again like i was saying a main driver for things like for chronic pain because you have to have that your body is thinking it needs to constantly be on high alert um but happening for so long over and over and over and over again just activating that system over and over again as like you know the bear comes home with you all the time you kind of have this repeated again just non-stop stress activation Mm -hmm. and i think that trauma and again so we for example like if you have a have something horrific that happens to you um, oh, I just lost your video. Oh, I'm still oh. around. 
Um, oh, okay. Not come back. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, if you have a trauma that happened to you and you can kind of picture like person, place, thing, everything that happened, mm-hmm. I think our brain responds similarly to that. Um, like for example, um, like what's a good example? Oh, like, like what, you know, when you, when you blush, mm-hmm. like you get the, you know, blood vessels are all dilate, you know, it's instantaneous physical change. It betrays what you're feeling um when it happens you can't control it i think that's really important like you know for example i always blush when so and so walks in the room like you can't control that even when they increase it increases your embarrassment you still can't control it you can't stop it so i think you can extrapolate from like you know i always blush in this situation to i always hurt in this situation because of what had happened before Mm -hmm. you know that like existence of the former suggests that pain can be a conditioned response to trauma. Like, right. um, and we feel similar symptoms. For example, uh, like my patient whose mother died, she was uh, a military, she served like two tours in Iraq. And um, again, she gave me permission. I'm not going to give any details, but she was very, very vocal about her experiences. She f- was feeling you know, she had like immense like back pain and like a back injury when she was in Iraq and it really hampered her ability to do her job and she felt guilty about that. And she was feeling same symptoms that would flare up identical when her mom was sick. And it's not like her back is re-injured. Her back is fine. Tissue is fine. But she's experiencing similar, similar reactions to um, what was happening in Iraq that caused the tissue trauma to begin with, right? Feelings of guilt, depression. Um, and that reaction, again, it's it's that opinion, the brain's going, oh, we're back in Iraq. Oh, we're feeling guilt. Oh, we're not feeling so good. Oh, then we should feel pain again. Right. Because right? it remembers, right? We're in this situation again. You know, I always bluster in this situation. I always feel pain in this situation. Here we go again. Yeah. So, yeah. From, from trauma comes that. Right. Yeah. And, you know, there's also, as we had sort of spoken just before we started about this, up, you know, emerging literature of how trauma gets stored in the body, so to speak, you know, or mm. there's that book, um, How Your Body Keeps, How the Body Keeps Score. The body uh, keeps the score. The yeah. body keeps the score about how, mm-hmm. you know, repressed uh, emotions or um, traumas or th- bits of your personality that you sort of aren't prepared to face yet or whatever it may be which sort of result from trauma or traumatic like events um Mm -hmm. that somehow are still contained in your in your physical body in different parts right i mean it could be your hands or your feet or your chest or your back or your stomach or whatever and it's weird because there's no exact like physiological reason for it to be that Mm -hmm. way at least to my knowledge, right? But it is obviously there, right? Like there's tons of evidence and studies that have shown it to be true and that mm-hmm. people can actually um, internally, you know, usually with guidance and things like that, um, they can place it inside of themselves, right? They do like, you can do like mm-hmm. a meditative body scan and 
you know, you get this sensation when you sort of focus your attention on a particular part of, a, of your body and certain memories might come up and emotions and feelings that are connected in some way that you sort of activate when you place your attention there. Um, and you can resolve them and, you know, work through them like that and, and whatever it is. But uh, it also makes sense that you could be feeling that pain there. And it's actually not as far off from like other physiological emotional phys emotionally physiological responses you know like when you get like butterflies in your stomach it's mm -hmm. like it feels like something's happening right like in your abdomen area or um i don't know that was one example or like you know you feel like emotion from your chest like from your heart and people say they feel love you know in their chest um not so much in their head and that's also interesting and um so it, it totally makes sense to me that trauma can be directly linked to like you know chronic like body pain right issues mm -hmm. with the tissues um i mean yeah. no no issues no with issues. the tissues yeah but uh you know some sort of experience of it i can't think of a rhyme with experience but um <laughs> or opinions yeah opinions is also difficult to rhyme with we'll think yeah. of something <laughs> same with perception we'll figure, yeah, we'll yeah. figure something out <laughs> very very long you know tricky words um yeah anyway but yeah so anyway what were you gonna say no i just saying the the body keeps the score book was was fascinating it's pretty controversial because there are some people who think you know sure. again like we had talked about it's very um very individual just like mm -hmm. the pain experience the recovery from it and the uh, management plan is very individual because there are some people like as in the book and, and the book makes reference to it you know that can re-trigger and actually set people back if it's too soon to be kind of going deep into kind of reliving traumas and stuff like mm -hmm. that but yeah I totally agree and I think the biggest thing that I try and convey to patients is that because everyone always says are you saying it's in my head and it's kind of hard to be saying no because it's not like yeah it 100 yeah. is in your head right your brain is your brain controls your reality right your yeah. brain is what's producing these hormones like of course it's in your head but it's very real like you're saying yeah. butterflies in your stomach like, that's a real sensation your heart rate's going to go up when you're nervous like that's real you can see the number going up if you have a heart rate monitor on mm -hmm. that's a real response that's not fake we, nobody's thinking you're faking anything but it's yeah. tough when all the everyone people want i don't know that's a, i shouldn't say people want but like there's a people like to see something structurally damaged right there's comfort in that because then there's a very real socially acceptable diagnosis there's no there's limited stigma and yeah. also you're like great here's something torn cracked or broken we will fix it it's yeah. hard to say there's nothing torn cracked or broken you have a functional very real cause of your pain and here are some of the ways to help it right it's hard because people don't want the pep talks and platitudes or general yeah, yeah. things they want specifics but like general answers do matter like exercise sleep hygiene quit smoking you know but it those things are all difficult active things that people have to do and they have mm -hmm. to really want to do it and, and they're not quick it fixes be, it's not quick it's hard because you have to you know you're doing a deep yeah. dive into a lot of your psychology and that's a hard thing to do and a lot of people want to avoid that mm. um but the people who i've been able to yell at and say like <laughs> this is what you need to do yeah people who've responded and have been like yes you either get people who are like no mm -mm, i want quick fix boom 
or you get the people who go, all right, and they're empowered by it. Right. And that is when you can really see improvement. And that's when it's exciting. Yeah. And when people are ready for it, right? When they're ready for it, right? Yeah. And I think a big part, again, thinking about the pandemic as well, Mm. um, a huge part of a modifiable risk factor for pain is social isolation. Mm-hmm. Um, when you don't have a good support group that makes you feel safe, you don't have love and support in your life. Um, that is an, again, another predictor of increased feelings of pain Yeah, and like giving support is just as good as, as getting it. So being involved in the community, people who are able to get out and do and volunteer, um, you have more to worry about and less to, you have more to worry about and less to do when you're lonely right yeah. so people who get out and are involved and do simple things like you know volunteer at the hospital like yeah. or wherever they can and develop a social network that's a huge component of it because we yeah. weren't meant to be by ourselves right the social poor, creatures z- the poor zebra who's off by himself without his tribe is the one that's going to get killed first right yeah. so you, w- you need to be a part of a tribe Absolutely. And that's why like mutual aid groups work really well, right? For like substance Mm -hmm. use or various Mm -hmm. conditions. And it's where people can go and give support and get support with no um, ulterior motives. There's no money, there's no business, there's no status, there's none of that. It's just people helping each other with, you know, coming from similar experiences and similar places and being able to be like, we're in this together, right? Mm-hmm. We work as a group, as a unit, um, and anyone's welcome just about, I suppose, unless you're a real dickhead, but um, <laughs> maybe there's a group for those people too. <laughs> you know, you just yeah. need to fi- find your crew. You just gotta find it, um, exactly. And it's true, and, 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 and COVID has really, you know, unfortunately what it, it's done, I think, I mean, I mean, I've experienced it myself where it's like, you don't even realize how slow change happens and how quickly you adapt to it, but it's not necessarily a good adaptation. It's like just a survival mm-hmm. adaptation, right? So with COVID and when everything started, it was like, yeah, everyone's just got to, you got to stay by yourself or within your family unit or something like that. And you just got to sit it out, right? You just, that's just what we had to do for a long time. And then you just do it and you miss your friends or your family and, or whatever it is and you know people sort of make different choices about things and that's okay but ultimately it's like when you do it for too long then that becomes your new normal right mm-hmm. and then that just is it's just how you do things and you're like oh I, well i don't have any social engagements or maybe one a month or something like that right or if you if you're lucky it depends where you live i suppose but uh it becomes a new normal and then all of a sudden you know, you go back to a group setting for something, right? Some function or some night out or something like that. And then you connect with people and you're like, oh my God, this is what things used to be like. And this is, you know, feels great. You know, just being there. Like it doesn't even have to have a reason. Like just going to a restaurant and being around other humans is such a huge deal, right? And Mm so we did have to go through this like rough patch of, you know, I guess it's like you don't know what you've got until it's gone, right? We didn't know how much we needed each other until we weren't allowed to be with each other. And then now we're like, oh, okay. It's time to kick that shit back up and 
feel good again, right? And yeah. return to being human um, yeah, exactly. and having good relationships. Yeah, good, good relationships and um, yeah, that community of that network of support, whatever that looks like, mm-hmm. right? Like it doesn't. Yeah, have I mean, it to could be, be one person. Exactly, and it it doesn't have to be like you're saying. It doesn't have to be in person. There's huge value yeah. to online friends, and uh, but having somebody like so you're not having somebody there uh, is yeah. It's just so so key, and I think it's tough because we have not most of us thankfully mm-hmm. have not had to live in like you were saying in a time of war or um, famine scarcity. Famine, exactly. We've lived in land of plenty and we are so privileged to be doing that. But I think, yeah, we're privileged to be doing that, but it's, uh, we still have to respect the fact that it's really hard when that changes. It will be hard. It was hard, right, for everyone when that flipped. And people are like, oh, we still have it so good. We still have it. Yeah, we do have it so good. But you know, give yourself a little bit of that corny phrase. Give yourself some grace. Because yeah. it still was, it was a massive change, right? Yeah. And so talking to people who've been through the war, the wars, and who've been through times of struggle, you know, my yeah. my uh, grandmother-in-law, you know, still, you know, keeps all her tea bags and stuff because she remembers what it was like when they didn't have that, right? And right. So keeping yourself humble, but also still recognizing that this was hard. Yeah, you know, we've never had to go through this before, and when you have to go through something new, it's gonna be a little tough. <laughs> yeah, and the other Learning thing about COVID, which was, I mean, interesting. We we will use the word interesting to say is that, like, particularly in the beginning, where it wasn't exactly clear what we were dealing with for the first few weeks or something like that, and essentially everyone felt at risk of dying, right? Mm-hmm. Because there was just no information about who's more or less at risk how how what the mortality rate is what the long-term consequences are and so it doesn't matter how much money you had to access medical treatment i mean it it makes a difference obviously but even given that there was this sense of like any one of us no matter how old or in what health condition we could die from this thing that just came out Mm -hmm. of nowhere that no one expected or foresaw and it was a really strange time to to be around and, and there was so much fear around, understandably, mm-hmm. right? Because everyone felt like they might die if they catch it. And some people still feel like that. And, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's okay and whatever. But I mean, so there was that interesting point in the beginning where I noticed where I was like, everyone just, I mean, I, I suppose there's exceptions and there's also the, you know, the people who are like, it's not real or stuff like that. and whatever it's not particularly relevant but um there was this like thing that surpassed you know any sort of like socioeconomic system of like Mm -hmm. everyone is at risk and now it didn't turn out to be that way exactly but uh it certainly felt like it before anyone knew anything about it right now things are obviously different and there's science and studies and you know millions of people have had it and and been okay and some haven't and you know but there's information now so we can make educated decisions about it and there's treatment protocols and all kinds of things that we didn't have 18 months ago um Mm -hmm. and so it, it was and and so i think that it certainly gave people like you know, it's not exactly like a near-death experience, 
but it's something like that i think where it, it was this sense of like you know reality is not what you think it is anymore right mm -hmm. everyone had their five-year plans and their 10-year plans and then mm -hmm. the universe was like guess what you don't get <laughs> to make these decisions all the time and mm -hmm. you might be at risk and it's scary you know and i think it's, it's a big reality check and i think a lot of good can come from it too you know in terms of people realizing what what's a priority for them you know like whether they prioritize work or relationships or you know, like money or things like that, it, it just sort of forced everyone to reevaluate their lives, which is not a fun thing to do, but it, it can be good for you if, if you take mm -hmm. it in that way, right? Mm -hmm. um, not to obviously diminish any of the terrible things that have happened because of COVID, which is obvious mm -hmm. everywhere. Um, yeah. But th there is something that happens through like really bad times, which is that you, you then start to appreciate the good and other people and and you can really sort of like hone in on that um if you can it's that positive yeah, attitude you were talking about you know well i think that's really important you know and i think what can come out of it you know we look we we've seen studies for people who um survived concentration camps and you kind of go one direction or the other i mm -hmm. mean obviously huge gray areas but like survival guilt versus survivor um you know I've been given a second chance at life, right? Yeah, gratitude. So, uh, gratitude, exactly. I mean, obviously, huge gray areas there. I'm making it extremely simplistic, but um, yeah, I think this is going to be. It's going to be interesting to see what happens as we come out, hopefully, from this. Mm -hmm. And I hope, from an individual standpoint, for sure, people have reevaluated. But I really hope that systems get reevaluated and we recognize how disproportionately affected some people in our communities were from yeah. COVID. You know, women, stay-at-home moms, um, low socioeconomic status people who could not, who did not have the luxury of staying at home where everyone was like, oh, this sucks, yeah. I have to stay home. It's like, well, some a lot of people couldn't afford to do that. Yeah. If you don't um, work, you don't eat. Exactly. And so I think looking at, again, coming back to the like th analogy of if 100 people drink from the well, yeah. stop giving them antibiotics when they get sick, look at the stupid well and see what yeah. is causing this, right? You know, right. Like it's so important to look at the, the bigger picture um, of that. And yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and we're also seeing it. I mean, we don't have to go down the vaccine, you know, rabbit hole, but we're also even seeing it with that about how some people you know, the sort of um, various marginalized groups are much more likely to not want to get the vaccine and then are going to be subsequently ostracized when these vaccine passports are going to be implemented. And mm -hmm. that's going to create a huge problem because you're going to have this big percentage of people that are disproportionately, um, that has a large proportion, disproportionately large percentage in this sort of unvaccinated group yep. um, that are now going to be excluded from society, which is a mental yeah. thing that's happening. Um, and and, and I, I, think, I don't understand yeah. it, but it, it's we'll see what happens from that, you know? I think it's, it's so complex. I mean, of course, you're going to have the, like, white, privileged uh, people who, you know, it's the same people who thought the vaccines cause autism, where it's like <laughs> vaccine, anti-vax, like vaccine yeah. deniers that's a privilege right like you're so privileged sure. that you can be like i'm not vaccinating my kid like that's ridiculous but then you also have 
the other side of things where um, these marginalized populations, lower SES, um, or indigenous communities who have a very real justified suspicion of the healthcare industry, of science, of the government. Absolutely. And absolutely real and i was watching this phenomenal documentary um which i don't think i can say what it is because i'm a judge for the ontario international film festival and it's one of the film <laughs> okay. festival films and it was just phenomenal um but anyway it's kind of a global thing um my husband and i were talking about it and it was about mm. you know indigenous populations and the whole idea and my husband did medical school in australia mm. i did medical school here and we learned very similar things about the indigenous population in both Canada and um, Australia is that when we as non-indigenous people think of the hospital, we think of this is where I go to get better. Mm -hmm. Indigenous people, huge generalization, but have a mindset of this is where I go to die Mm. because they remember like residential schools on the reserve. They would have to ask permission to go, you know, when they were sick to go to the hospital from the guards, like they just had, you know, right. horrific experiences with the healthcare system. So there's a very justified suspicion uh, from these groups of people. And so hence the reason why low vaccination rates. And so yeah. it's trying to dig through that from a public health standpoint and recognizing that this is not just like I'm a privileged anti-vaxxer. This comes yeah. from a very deep-rooted systemic problem that is going to be really hard to I don't think resolve is the right word because it just it yeah, goes to so deep and to manage and to try and and gain that trust back um yeah, yeah it's never it's mind fascinating. the like experiments like the Tuskegee trials oh, in America and God. you know with and that was Which, like related to a vaccine right I mean absolutely no right? shit people so, don't trust the government <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So I have no, <laughs> I have no respect for people who are like I come from a very privileged white upper socioeconomic status who have not gone through this. Like that's just ridiculousness. But when you've come from a population that has seen and been through and has generational trauma from this, yeah, whew, then that requires the respect and the ears to listen and. That's where trust comes from. And it's the same thing that comes it comes right back to we're talking about how I deal with how I deal with that sounds horrible. How mm. I chat with yeah. and converse with patients of mine that I see with chronic pain, right? Yeah. Developing that trust. Yeah. Uh, I, I, Ooh, like, I have no <laughs> I have no idea about what the right thing to do is. I mean, there's mm-hmm. so much debate and it's such an emotional topic, vaccines at the moment. And I, I'm just like, I don't know. Like, I, you know, people ask me what I think about things. And I'm like, honestly, I don't have enough information to make any sort of educated, uh, to give you an educated answer. And thank God I'm not in a position to make decisions about these things because I wouldn't know what to do because mm-hmm. it's an impossible choice that, that people have to make. And I feel bad for the decision makers. And, you know, mm-hmm. the consequences of their decisions will come to fruition regardless of what happens and um it might be good it might not be good and you know i'm not i'm hesitant i'm I'm very hesitant about the sort of vaccine passport thing i mean i get why people want it and you know people want to get back to living and they're like well i'm vaccinated and i don't want the unvaccinated people to put me at risk and to stop me from getting back to normal but i'm also like yeah but 
the other side, like you can't just get rid of them and ostracize them from a community, even if it's a relatively small percentage, like it doesn't work that way. And with international travel being as prolific as it is, it's like, unless the whole world is vaccinated, then there's, you're going to get, you know, millions of people in all sorts of third world countries that are going to be unvaccinated that are going to be traveling. And so it's like, Mm -hmm. why do this to, to people? But Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, um, it's good yeah, that I'm not making these decisions. It's tricky. <laughs> it's so tricky, right? You know, yeah. I think a, a vaccine passport is not a new thing, right? Like no. I had to, I had to be vaccinated to get into medical school. Um, yeah, I yeah. had to show proof that I had yellow fever vaccine before I could enter into Kenya when I went. Um, but yeah, I remember having a discussion about uh, somebody was saying, "Oh, everyone at the Olympics, why aren't they all vaccinated? They should have all been vaccinated and stuff like that." And I was like, "Uh." half the countries don't have access to the vaccine yeah. yet because America bought it all. Right. right. Like these poor third world countries don't even have access yet. I mean, it's yeah. getting there. We're getting there. But like eventually you can't demand vaccine status from a third world country that has yet to get the vaccine. Mm-hmm. And then that again, huge pu- public health implications for that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, and also like mandated vaccines some- is ethically mm-hmm. problematic um it's tough right you know yeah. i think uh, it's not clear cut but it's it's, it's not tough. clear cut and i think you know i could debate with people i mean i'm a doctor everyone knows my status of course i'm gonna <laughs> vaccinate everyone but vaccine deniers and i i don't really have much patience for it's the vaccine hesitant that i love to talk to yeah, because they're the ones that I like. I will sit with you for an hour and let's talk about what you're worried about. Yeah, because for them it's fear. For them it's not anger. Like vaccine anti-vaxxers are angry. It's like angry is a secondary emotion. I can't deal with that. Yeah, when it's fear and lack of trust, like let's have that conversation to talk about that. And it's the same with anything in medicine. What we're taught yeah. to do is to ask somebody like they come Informed in and they have consent. all these symptoms. Right. Well, and the, the, we ask, well, what, what are you, what are you worried about? Because there's usually something that they're too scared to tell you, because they're worried they'll be judged. But like, no, mm-hmm. let's let's talk about it so we can go resolve through it together. things. Yeah, exactly. No, mm-hmm. for sure, and and it's not so clear cut. And I think people, unfortunately, people who are hesitant to get the COVID vaccine, are unfortunately grouped in with the sort of like anti-vax group. Yeah. Um, which are the sort of loud, angry people, even all, and not all of them are like that. You know, it's just the loud ones that make the most noise and give the group a bad name, as it is with yeah. all groups, right? I mean, yeah, exactly. you get the crazies that just give everyone a bad, uh, a bad mm-hmm. name for it, and it's not an easy. There's, uh, there's no easy answers, and you know, I, I have huge empathy for everyone involved, and I don't like the anger that comes from both sides because you also get the sort of you know, the sort of pro-vax people that are so angry about the people who are hesitant mm-hmm. to get it and, mm-hmm. you know, like wishing terrible things on them and even oh, like get wishing death. And it's insane that we've reached this point where people are like, you know, I hope you die from COVID if you don't want to get the vaccine. Yeah. And it's like, what's wrong with you? Or and vice versa, you know? right? Like, yeah. I hope you or die. Or like, I hope the vaccine vaccinated. kills you. Yeah. It's like, what's wrong with you? Blows like, my mind. These are real yeah. people, you know? And if you mm-hmm. met them in the street or if they're your family member, you're not going to have that opinion, right? Mm-hmm. We have the yeah. privilege of hiding behind our screens when we do that and anonymity to be able to just voice our anger over the internet and make a mm-hmm. ruckus and upset people. But that's been, I think, the most 
troubling for me is the sort of yeah. level of of rage that people have on on mm-hmm. all sides of just like wishing harm and it's like that's a really dangerous thought that people have mm-hmm. and if lots of people have it you end up in a you could end up in a very bad place um i think i yeah and it's i had that it's scary when somebody's again we talk about like anger yeah. is a secondary emotion right so there's usually means that there's a deep-rooted primary cause for it and it's usually fear and fear. lack of understanding sadness yeah. right and when you're when our like lizard brain gets yeah. so overwhelmed and doesn't understand people either ask questions to figure out more that's you that's the majority of the population mm-hmm. or lizard brain kicks in and goes i don't understand i ain't gonna rage about it yeah and they in defense can't it, exactly yeah. and when somebody's baseline or response to i don't understand what's going on is anger Ooh, that's scary. It's concerning. Right? And usually yeah. those are the people who are making decisions. <laughs> yeah, that's the fun part right? about that's humanity. That's the fun part. Exactly. Because the they're the loudest. Yeah. And they cause a ruckus. And they people do. don't want them to cause a ruckus. So they go, okay, okay, sir, sir, we'll help. Okay, okay. Yeah. Right? And they just yeah. bow to, you know, the yeah. sort of social pressure of it. It's unfortunate. Yeah. <laughs> um, it is. And I, I don't know what's to be done about it, if I'm honest, because I'm like, yeah, we're dealing with millions of humans you can't just be like this is what you need to do it's like that's not Mm -hmm. how anything works in society you know there's division on all things in terms of opinion about stuff like that's Mm -hmm. the nature of politics is it's like there's and it's unfortunate that science and medicine has become politicized because it should be Mm -hmm. apolitical because it's not relevant but that's not the reality of it because there's so many players involved and there's so much Mm -hmm. money involved and whenever there's money involved, things get complicated because what's mm-hmm. the priority anymore, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah but that's a, a topic for another day. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> listen, I, I've really, this has been a really great chat and thank you so much for coming on. Um, is there you anything you'd like to great. promote, like a site for you if people want to, you know? Oh, um, yeah. I have, a, I have a website. It's nothing crazy. It's just JanetMcMorty.com. There's nothing on there except my... Uh, just my face, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I have a small clinical practice in Aurelia, Ontario. Um, and uh, yeah. Oh, I have a, I do a podcast with the Canadian Academy of Sport and Exercise Medicine. Mm. Um, the like Canadian governing body of sport and exercise medicine. We do a podcast. Um, but that's all. What's that called? Sports injuries and stuff. Uh, so it's just called like, you know, Canadian. What is it? What is it called? Um, oh, that's terrible. It's like it's like common topics and it's just it's chasm c-a-s-e-m is canadian academy of sport and exercise medicine mm-hmm. and um yeah it's like the podcast from there that's terrible cool. i should know what the actual title is hold on let me look for it you can edit this out because it makes me look bad <laughs> it is called well that's fine it's, i started medicine. off with your name wrong yeah. you know it's a <laughs> good okay. episode for us <laughs> the canadian sport medicine review podcast all right, and that's available that's everywhere a, for people to check out? Yeah, yeah, right. they can check that out. We have lots of interesting sports medicine guests. Amazing. Well, thank you very much. Um, I hope we do this again soon. But uh, until so then, too. keep well. Awesome. You too. Thank you. Take care. Bye.